good morning again. If you don't know who I be, my name is uh, Derek McCarter, and I'm the pastor here at Shift Church. Got it right today. I think I know my own church name, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, um, so we've been in this seat. Well, first let me say this. What we did just a little bit ago with baptizing Lisa, that was like, that's the whole goal with Shift Church is to really see lives truly changed and um, so I appreciate Lisa giving me the opportunity to do that. And, um, but we've been in this series called FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions. Okay? And we've been, I've been answering your questions, questions that you have submitted to me. And so hopefully you've been encouraged through that. I know we've had a little bit of recording issues. Uh, hopefully it's working today. But um, if not, if you go to the resource section underneath the... Um, audio thing there on the website, and you click on it, um, it'll come a PDF file of like last week's stuff, um, and hopefully, if you have any questions, just come ask me, okay? Um, but I've been really, I've been, I've really enjoyed this series, so I hope you guys have too, and, um, <clears throat> but today is the last week as we wrap this up, and um, I've titled this one Shotgun, okay? The old shotgun, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I feel really bad for Joe today, because there are 74 slides but we'll go through them real quick, okay? Um, so basically what I'm going to do today is I'm going to answer the rest of the questions that, w- that were submitted. Um, and there's some really good ones in here. I ain't going to tell you which one I like the best. We'll see if you can recognize it, okay? Um, so what we're going to do is we'll pop the, uh, each time I'll pop the new question up on the screen so you know which one I'm starting out with um, each time. And then there's some notes and all of those. So if you like writing notes, today is your day, okay? So it's going to be a little bit different today than a normal sermon that you would come here and hear. So if you don't like it, please come back next week. Uh, it'll be back to normal. Okay, I just really wanted to do this. All right, so the first question is this. It's a good one. How can you honor your parents when they have done nothing but hurt you? That's a really good question because I work at Southwell Middle School, and there's a lot of hurt that happens in a kid's life because of their parents, Okay, rather it's directly or indirectly, and I see that in day, but the question becomes, how can you honor a parent when they have done nothing but hurt you? Okay, it's a good question, and to set this up, I want to read this passage to you. It's in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, chapter 1, it says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Who do you belong to? The Lord. Okay, for this is the right thing to do, and verse 2 says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother... Things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. I want you to leave me right there for a second, okay? It does not say, if your parents are perfect, honor them, right? It doesn't say, if your parents are perfect, honor them. It doesn't say that at all, okay? So, but we'll get, to that here in a, we'll get to that here in a minute, but I just kind of wanted to point that out here. But here's verse 4 of this. It says, fathers or mothers or guardians, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them, Okay? Um, rather, sorry, that, that's a little cut off up there. Um, provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the, dis- with the discipline and instruction that comes. So here's, here's two paradigms, okay? You have a verse that says, you belong to the Lord, right? So you honor your father and mother. Not if they're perfect, not when they're perfect. Honor your father and mother. No ifs, ands, and buts, Okay? But then you have over here where it says, fathers, mothers, whoever, don't provoke your kids to anger. Okay? So where, where do we go from here? Right? Because there's some parents who provoke their, their children to anger. I get that. 
Okay? And, but here's the first note. If you're, if you're taking notes, you can write. Okay? Honor is given. You should all, why, honor is given. You should always honor because you belong to the Lord. Okay? But honor is given. I think that's, is that the next one? Okay. So honor is given because we get, we get this mixed up sometimes because honor and respect are two different things. Respect is earned. Honor is given. Okay? It's like, it's like this. I heard a pastor one time talking about his wife has having a conversation with another lady. And the lady said, I wish my husband was as honorable as your husband. And then she would talk dirty about him. Okay? And the advice that this pastor's wife said, well, why don't you just place honor on your husband so they can rise up to meet it? Because honor you place, respect is earned. And so here's, what, here's my advice. One, honor your parents. Does that mean you stay in a hurtful relationship the whole time? No. If you need to remove yourself from that, but there's a, that's, that's okay. But you've got to honor your father and mother. Because you, you, if you're a believer, you belong to the Lord, and that's a command. So honor them. But you can withdraw from that hurtful, hurtful, um, hurt, hurtful relationship. But here's, cause it is, and that goes for any relationship that's hurtful. Okay? You honor the other person always. But you don't have to stay in that hurt. You understand what I'm saying? Okay? Um, and last thing is, uh, one of the other things is this. One of the last things is this, is make sure your perspective is right. Because sometimes, even though my perspective is my reality, it may not always be true, a true reality. Because sometimes what we feel is, them, is people being hurtful toward us isn't really them being hurtful toward us. We have the wrong viewpoint. So always, always make sure you have the right perspective. And I said that was the last thing, but here's the last thing. We, we, we serve a God that is all about reconciliation, about coming back to, people coming back together, us coming back to him. Um, at some point, there needs to be an attempt to try to reconcile a relationship. That doesn't have to mean it has to happen today. It may happen years down the road. But at some point, there needs to be an attempt to reconcile because we serve a God who likes to reconcile relationships. Everybody with me? Uh, next question. There is no pain and suffering in heaven. All right, yeah. There is no pain and suffering in heaven. So my question is, can our loved ones really look down and see us? And here's a real quick answer. We, we don't know. But, because there's hints that they can see what's going on, and there's hints in the Bible that say they can't see. But in the last thing that I put in these notes, and I'll go ahead and say it, but they're in the presence of God, so why would they want to watch us? I'm just stoned out there. But if they can, there's a, they do it with new eyes. They don't see the world the way that we see it anymore. Because the Bible says when you, when you enter glory, you get a glorified Body. So that means eyes. You see things from a different perspective. Hebrews, Hebrews, um, Hebrews 12, 23 says this. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God's, God himself who is the judge over all things. You have come, come to the, spir- the spirits of the righteous one in heaven who have now been made perfect. They're, they see earth with a... If they, if they can see, they see it in a way that... that, um, that, that we can't see the world. They see how everything is lining up to, to further God's kingdom. While we may see disease and death and decay and hurt, they're seeing, okay, all this stuff is lining up to get this person to see Jesus or to, for Jesus to come. Now, but also this is like, so they have perfect vision, which they have perfect understanding. And if you read Hebrews 12, the whole chapter, it hints, it does hint that they can, um, but it's from a perspective that they are, ur- that they are urging us 
toward the things of Christ since that's what's central to heaven. Because it gives a whole list of the people who have gone before us and it's like they're, they're cheering us on so that we can see Christ. Now, that's not me saying yes, they're watching us right now because um, I don't know. And the Bible's not clear on, on can they watch. But my whole thing is, listen, if I'm in the presence of Jesus, I'm going to say bye-bye, suckers. I ain't watching nothing down here. Okay? All right, so honestly, though, why would they want to? Okay, so here's, here's question four. Why does God create vessels of dishonor? This is a good question. I love this question because there's two streams in this. But, there's a, but first, we need to understand where this question comes from. Okay? And it comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20, that says this. Therefore, I went, now it is great. He already switched it. That was good. I was like, what? That's what it just said. Now in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Leave me right there for a second. So think about it this in a house, okay? A trash can has its purpose. To put trash in it, right? The toilet has its purpose. To put all your in it, right? All your stuff. All, right? all this all this, okay. Okay. A vase has a purpose in your house. Put beautiful flowers in. You know, so everything has a purpose. Right? Everything in your house is for no matter how, how dirty it can be to how clean you, you drink out of it is, okay? Whatever the case may be, it goes on to say this, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleans himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. So listen, you can clean up a trash can and drink out of it. You have to clean it really good. But you get what I'm saying? So even if we're dirty, we can, we can do things to make ourselves more usable by God. Okay, um, so what is this, uh, for himself, what is dishonorable? He will be a vessel for honor, honorable use, set apart as holy, useful, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Okay, so here's, here's, there's two streams on this. One of them I kind of mentioned, okay, is that there's two streams. So one stream is, is that, um, that you can make yourself, you can clean yourself up, not like clean yourself up like come to God, but Let's say you're a Christian and you got some things in your life. You can choose purity, right? You can choose to be pure with yourself, right? And that makes you more honorable for God to use. You can, you can say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rid myself of addictions. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have sex outside of marriage anymore. I'm not going to do all this thing. I'm going to make my body a temple of the Lord. So I'm going I'm to be usable by God. Because those are choices you have say, you know, I'm okay. And then it's word because it says to be in, ready in season and out of season. And so, so I'm going to make sure I'm ready for when it comes time for me to tell my story. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be a vessel that can be used. Okay. Then there's a second stream over here. Okay. There's a second stream over here and it's the, in the reformed camp. It says, it basically has this thought process that God creates vessels of honor and dishonor honor because both are used or can be used to glorify God. It's like this picture of you have love, and with love you have to have wrath, right? You have the love of God, and in the future you'll have the wrath of God. There's both the same thing, okay? For something to be clean, at one point it had to be dirty, right? So you have this, this, this vice versa. It's this idea that the question is asked a lot of times, um, is God glorified in someone's dysfunction? Well, it, it could be. Okay, so you may be asking, Derek, what's, what's the right stream to view? And I'm just going to say yes. Because cause God can get glorified in all things, right? And also, we need to work to make, our, make sure we are, we are pure, that we are usable to God. 
So the answer to that is yes. Now to answer the question, why does God make things honorable and dishonorable? Um, I think it's this exact reason. Okay, because where there where there is darkness, there has to be light. Where there is where there is um, where there is a kindness, there has to be deceitfulness. There ha- you know there there has to be that. Okay, hope that made sense. Why do you think this? Okay, I will tell you this is my favorite one. Okay, next question. Why do you think the books of the Bible were left out of the Bible? It's a great question. Like the Book of Thomas and Enoch. What do you think of them? To me, it could just seem like reading a fairy tale. So the question we have to ask ourselves, okay, when it comes to the Bible, is how did we get the Bible that we have in our hands? Okay? So how do we get the Bible we have in our hands? I'm not talking about did we go to Lifeway and buy it. So how do we get the books that we have that we call the Holy Bible? And there's this word, it's called canon. You can go ahead and put that up. It's a canon. You maybe heard somebody say canon of Scripture, okay? Or... Yeah, pretty much that's all they say. Okay, so, so can, can, and what, a, what canon means is not a ball that shoots at, you know, that shoots a ball, a ball at somebody. Okay, it, canon in this sense means read or measurement or something that you measure by. And so what, what the early church did was they did get our new, specifically our New Testament canon, um, is they, they basically measured each book by a certain amount of categories. Okay, I put on here, thus, the canon of Scripture refers to the books that are considered the authoritative word of God. So how did we get that? Here's, here's the first thing. It's conformity or rule of faith. Okay, And it's this idea that um, did the book go along with Orthodox Christianity or was, it, or was it what was always taught from Christ and the apostles? So conformity. Okay, So basically what this looks like is did it match up with what Jesus taught and the early apostles taught? Okay. Um, so that was the writer. Second measurement is apostolicity. Um, was, was the writer an apostle of Jesus or someone who had immediate contact with the apostles? Okay. So you had like, for example, the book of Luke. Luke was not an apostle or a disciple of Jesus, but he was a disciple of, of, of Paul. Okay. So that's why his books in there. You have Mark, who was a, who wrote one of the Gospels, which was under Peter. Okay, he had direct contact. He had James uh, and Jude, who are brothers of Jesus. They were directly connected to Jesus Himself. Okay, just to give you. In the, but people always bring up, well, what about Hebrews? You know, it doesn't. We nobody knows who the author is, and you're correct. Okay, but. Orthodox Christianity believe it's it was written by Paul because of the way it was written or someone closely related to Paul. There's a couple of people that may have wrote it, okay? There's Apollos, who was a disciple of Paul. There's Clement, um, who was a disciple of Paul. And Luke, who was a disciple of Paul, okay? So I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. I'll tell you what I believe, but at this point it doesn't really matter because it was somewhere connected to Paul, okay? I believe that it was Apollos who wrote it just because of the um, language that was used in it. But that's probably way not important, okay? Um, if you studied any of his other writings, you'd say, oh, that kind of lines up, okay? And then you have Catholicity. God, I can never say this word, okay? Did the book have worldwide acceptance and usage by the church everywhere already, okay? And so you have to think, these letters that these guys, because the books that we have in the New Testament are really letters written to churches, Okay, they're really just letters. Okay, so a letter would go to the church, the, to, to church in Philippi, which is where we get like Philippians. Okay, 
And then they, after they would read that letter, they would pass it on to other churches because it, was, it could be used for, to further, to further God, uh, Christ's message, okay? And so, so a lot of the stuff that we have already in the New Testament, churches were already using as authority, as the things to live by, okay? Um, and then the last thing is this, is I'm going to write this down. Uh, if you want to write this down, put it in the notes, but write this down, okay? All, all the books that we have in the New Testament were written within the lifetime of either the apostles or someone directly under the apostles. So that gives it some weight to it because they can say, no, that's not true. What they're writing is not true. There was people there that could read it and say, this is, this is a false doctrine, this is a false writing, and so we can, so we can just chuck this to the side. Okay, this isn't right. This isn't right. So, so specifically getting to the question at hand. Okay, I'm just going to suggest because I'm going to try to run through some of this real fast. Is go back and listen to it and do some, take some notes. Okay, um, you have like the Book of Thomas, for example. You can go and go to the next slide. The Book of Thomas that was mentioned in that question. It was written a hundred years after eyewitnesses were already dead. And it's part of what is called the Gnostic Gospels, okay? Um, it was written 100 years after eyewitnesses were dead. So did it fit the criteria that we just mentioned? No, okay? So that's one reason why we can't trust the book of Thomas, because it was written 100 years after the last person who would have experienced Jesus in person or apostles in person were, um, were alive. And then there's also, you know, when, I, when it said, did it go along with Orthodox Christianity? What was always taught by the apostles and, and, and Christ? Well, the answer is no, because this is a quote in the opening of the book of Thomas. Okay? It says this. Opening of the book of Jesus says this. And they, I'll put it on here so you can read it. These are the secret sayings with, with the living Jesus spoken. Here's the th- first thing you need to understand. There is no such thing as Jesus keeping anything secret. Because his whole point coming was for us to see God to reveal God to us. That's why he, like, Jesus is considered a special revelation is because he was, he was here for us to understand who God was. Now, there was one story in the Bible where he tells a bunch of parables and the disciples come up and say, why did you speak that way? And it's that whole, if they had ears to hear, they would hear kind of thing. But he says there, I spoke in a way so that they wouldn't understand it. But it wasn't because of Jesus not wanting them to understand it. It was because their hearts were already hardened. Okay? But Jesus always came to not keep secrets, but to reveal things to us. So just that alone throws this whole, throws it off. But it says, secret sayings which the living Jesus spoke uh, and which Didymus, Judas, Thomas wrote down. He, he said, whoever finds the interpretations of these sayings will not experience death. That's the opening line of the book of Thomas. Okay which goes against what Orthodox Christianity, what Jesus taught and the apostles taught, because how do you inherit eternal life? Through Jesus, Jesus alone, through his sacrifice and his resurrection, right? So that's the only way you can inherit eternal life and never die, okay? So right up front, the book of Thomas is not only fails the um, Orthodox Christian beliefs, but it also fails the timeline in which they would could count it as legitimate from Thomas the disciple. Because the argument is, is that Thomas the disciple wrote this, but this was written 100 years after even the last person had died. Okay? Everybody understand? And the next one is the book of Enoch that was, that was mentioned. It was written 200 centuries before Christ, supposedly 
by Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah, okay? Um, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll say this in a minute, okay? Um, and here's the second thing. So 200 centuries before Jesus, and this is also Enoch lived and died a few centuries before this was even written. So there's no way to really know who wrote the book of Enoch because Enoch was dead uh, 200 years before it was ever really written. Okay? Okay, so the question becomes, so the question becomes, can you read uncanonized writings? And my answer is sort of. Okay? I'll first put this in here. If you're a new believer, I would suggest making sure you know the word of God that we have right now. Um as good as possible before you read anything else. But on the yes side of things, you have to understand there are some great writings from that those centuries that you can that you can that you can reach into and get some historical facts from. Okay, just to give you an example, the Catholic Church has a few extra books in in their Bible, the Catholic Church, which is they call it the Apocrypha. And um, there's, two, there's two books called 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, okay? There really was a, a Maccabean war, okay? And, it's, and you can read and, and find histor- stuff, historical stuff in there and get a context because this happens a, just a little bit before Christ rolls, in, rolls onto the scene. So you can get the, get the mindset of people, okay? You can get the mindset of when Jesus was born, where people were, when they expected. Because here's the thing with the Maccabean War, is that they thought this is now when the Messiah is coming to rescue Israel and and God's people. Okay, so that's why they had this in in their mind that Jesus was going to be a warrior or a a soldier because, because of what they just experienced in the Maccabean War. Okay, so can you read uncanonized material? Sure. Okay, there's some stuff that I love. Like I've read parts of Enoch, and it's pretty interesting. But Enoch didn't write it because it was written 200 years after Enoch actually lived. Okay, and then what about Thomas? Thomas was written 100 years after the last disciple was living, and the opening line of it goes against Orthodox Christianity. Now, can you read it? Sure. But like I said, there's no secrets because the opening line says there's secrets. These are the secret sayings of Jesus. No, Jesus had no secrets. He was here to reveal himself. So, yes, you can read them. There's actually, um, if you get a chance, this is a side note, um, there's an extra part of Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, that you can find and read. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Okay, but this is, but here's the thing, with, with the Apocrypha and with these other writings that we can read, there's some of it we can look in and find historical stuff, but it doesn't hold weight when it comes to our faith. Okay, just like I can go read a book by a pastor and it has no authority in my life, okay? It doesn't hold weight in my life. So you can do the same thing with non-canonized material, okay? Second question is this, and this is a good question. How do you use the Bible to combat depression and anxiety? And for the church for too long has said, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't suffer with depression, okay? If you're a Christian, you shouldn't suffer with depression, which is absolutely false because you have David, who is a man after God's own heart, it says who in one chapter would say, where are you, God? Have you forsaken me? And the next chapter go, God, you're always with me. You're faithful. And then like, it's like bipolar much, okay? Um, and then the next chapter, he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the next chapter, you anoint my head with oil. You, you, you lead me in passive right. It's like, 
David, you got to take a pill or something. I don't know, okay? You're going way bipolar on this, okay? Um, but so people, like, people suffer with depression. Um, it has nothing to do with their faith necessarily, but it's in how we respond to that depression that determines our journey, okay? And that's why I believe is like we can use the Bible in this way to combat depression, and it's this. Focus on the promises of God. Because Proverbs twelve twenty five says this. Worry weighs a person down, and an encouraging word cheers a person up. Okay? We need that in our lives. But notice it doesn't say anything about your depression will be gone. But it'll change our, what we focus on. Because if we focus on depression, then we're going to stay there. But if we focus on a promise, we have a hope. That's why when, when we're in the life that we have now, we look forward to the promise of God's return. Because if we just focus on what is today, then we're going to realize our lives are kind of sucky. <laughs> but if we keep our hope in what is to come, it keeps us focused, it keeps us moving, because we know in the end, no matter what we face, we win. You with me? Okay. So here's a couple, I'm going to throw out a couple of verses here for you, okay? Deuteronomy 31.8 says... Do not be afraid. So you can use these verses to combat depression, okay? I believe. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. So no matter what you're entering into, God's already there, okay? He will go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither uh, fail you nor abandon you. Isaiah 41.10 says this, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. And verse 10 goes on to say, I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Psalms 41 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. Verse 2 says, he lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walk along. And verse 3 says, last one on this, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. And so, like I said, if you're battling depression and you want to know how the Bible, how to use the Bible to combat that, just focus on the promises of God. He goes before you. He is with you. His hand guides you. He's, he's there. He's comforting you. Like I love, um, Brittany's mom used to, there's, it's not in the Bible, but there's this poem that talks about footprints in the sand. It just reminds me of the promises of God of, you know, when I can't go forward, he's there carrying me. When I can't, when I can't, when I feel like what I'm facing tomorrow is going to be rough, you have, you, we know that you've gone before us, God, so we'll, we'll be okay in this. Everybody get on that one? Okay. Next question. This is a good one, too. Why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Why doesn't God just destroy? Did I skip one? Okay, I skipped one. Let me go on. Okay. If there's only one God, what happens to the rest of the world where, where they are not exposed to my God? And this is, this, I'm, I almost want to be honest with you, this is a hard question. A real hard question. Not heard about, and it's a question that kind of grips us. Okay. So what happens to those people who have not heard about God because the message has not got there yet? Okay. And so let me just step back here and say, this is not conjecture. This is what the Word of God says. Okay. It says in Romans 120, it says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, and as the flesh part of me wants to go, but God, they haven't heard about you. But God's saying that you can see, like you know, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about in Ecclesiastes where it says that God's placed eternity on man's heart, which means, you know, we 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 look at this world and we know it's not supposed to be this way. That there's something different out there. Like all of us have that. So when we see nature and we see the destruction of nature, see the deterioration of nature, when we look at ourselves and we see the deterioration of ourselves, that's God's sign saying there's something more out there than, than, than what we're experiencing here. And it says that we are without excuse. But the better question is, the better question is, oh, I'm going to say this. I'll do the better question at the end. But we do have a promise of God. There is a promise here, and it's found in Matthew 24:14 that says, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then, then the end will come. So God's not going to return until the gospel is reached to every people group in the world. Okay? Um, so that's a promise that we have. But here's the better question. If you're the one that turned in that question, it's a great question. But my question for you is, what are you doing to make a difference in those countries that haven't heard about Jesus? So we can put the blame of, on God if we want to, or we can take some responsibility in and of ourselves and say, you know what, I need to go and share the gospel myself. Because it's not just in the parts of the world that haven't reached it. Like 10 years ago, I took a kids to a camp called Super Wow, and we went and worked in, the, in kind of the ghetto of... Uh, um, around Jekyll Island, Georgia, and there was a little kid there, and we were talking to him, and we said, have you ever heard of Jesus? And he said, no. Nick gets in America. Broke my heart. Made me want to move down there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's not just parts of the world that don't know me. It's here in our country, too. So my question is, what are you doing to make a difference so people can know the name? Because we need to stop pushing the blame of God. Well, God, if you're a loving God, then how can you send these people who've never heard of you well, my question is, if you serve a loving God, how can the love that's in you not push you to go do that? Okay, sorry. Because you are the vessel in which the message goes. Okay, sorry. So here's the question that I posed before. Why doesn't God just destroy Satan? God, I wish he would. But from the beginning, there's only one point in history that God's going to be a God that destroys everything. And it's really not going to be destroyed. It's going to be made new, refined. But here's here's what here's what I want to here's what I want to say is is that God is a God who builds up and doesn't destroy, right? His whole purpose was never to come to come condemn us um, or any of that. But God doesn't God God builds, He creates, He doesn't destroy. Okay, so He's not going to destroy His creation per se yet. Okay, but one day He will. And that's where we get Revelations 27 that says, when the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be led out of his prison. You're like, what? Because at this point, Satan is bound up. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, it's, earth is the way it's supposed to be. I don't know where y'all stand on, on that. That could have been a really cool question, end-time stuff, but we won't even get there. Maybe one day. Okay, but it says this. He will go out and deceive the nations called, called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth, which means he's going to have one other short season to try to get as many people to go away from Jesus as possible. And what's even amazing is it says that there's some that will go with him, even though it's been a thousand years of his kingdom on earth. 
shows, which shows like, I could follow Jesus better if he was standing right beside me. No, you couldn't, because these people are not going to. Okay, there's going to be some people who choose to go after Satan instead of following the one true King Jesus. God made God in, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for a battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And then verse 9 says, And I saw them as they went up to, to, the, to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But, uh, but fire from heaven came down on, on the attacking army and consumed them. So one day Satan will be destroyed. And so my question for you is this. What are you going to do in the meantime? Where's your hope going to be? Because we give the devil way too much credit sometimes in our life. Way too much credit. My tire blew. It must have been the devil. No, it was a nail. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a nail driving down the road, okay? But we, we, we put the devil at, at, in an eye level with us when in reality the Bible says that he is under our feet. So if you want to say something to the devil, you should write a note, put it to the bottom of your shoe because you're standing on him. Okay? So do not give the devil playing field. Like it's a whole Psalms 23. You know, most people will oh, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. And it goes on to say, I've, I've prepared a table before you in front of your enemies. Who are you giving a seat at your table? Because it should be only you and God. Okay? All right, last one. Last one. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Okay, here we go. Uh, not mean like I'm doing good answering these questions. I mean, I hope I am, but I'm doing good on time is what I mean. Uh, okay, sorry anyways. <laughs> Can you lose your salvation? And there's, these are actually two questions because... Uh, and I, since they're kind of around the same thing, I thought I'd put them together. Um, can you lose your salvation slash will you go to hell if you commit suicide? And so first let's tackle can you lose your salvation. First um, John 5.11 says this, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. Does eternal life end? No. And this life is in his son. Romans 8.30 says this, and those whom he predestined, he has called... If you want to ask me any questions about that predestination, just come ask me afterward, okay? And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so let me just pause right here and say this about those two verses. First, about First uh, John 5, 11. So he didn't give us temporary life. He gave us eternal life, okay? So you got that going on there. He gives us eternal life. We, we are already participating in a life that even though our bodies will age, our spirits will live on. Okay? And on the Romans passage, it's the, the glorification is the final state of a permanent salvation. Okay? So we are constantly being renewed every day. Okay? Constantly being renewed every day. Nobody's going to drop out. And they are justified, which means it's not, you know, if it was up to us, if our salvation was up to us, if it was up to our works, then I would say... Sure, you can lose your salvation because we are screwed up from the floor up and we mess up every day. But according to the Bible, it says that we'll be glorified one day, which would also show that the salvation that we have really isn't ours to begin with. It was his. Now can we lose something that's not even ours? That's all another point. So the answer is, if you are called, you cannot lose your salvation. So, you know, Philippians 1.6 says this, and I am sure of this, that that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. So the salvation that was begun in you, God is going to carry it out to the day it's complete, which is the day that glorification happens, which is the day that we're standing before God in heaven. Okay? Next one, John 10, 28 through 30. I gave them eternal life, and they will never perish. No, no one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is, is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. And verse 30 says, the Father and I are one. So there's nothing that can tear you away from Jesus, which is why Romans 8, 35-39 says this. I did 34, so that's even better. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Verse 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he is no longer, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Verse 36, as the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day, which means we, we're, there's some part of us dying every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Verse 39, no power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God as found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's, so here's what all this means, okay, is as far as Shift Church and as far as I'm concerned, the Bible teaches that there is no way that you can lose your salvation because it says nothing can tear us away from it. Nothing can tear us away from the love of that is found in God. Right? So. Oh, let me go back to say this. Where the argument comes in. That you can lose your salvation. is there, There's a passage in Hebrews that says. And this is Derek's paraphrase. Is that there will be some who have come in and tasted the goodness of God. But have turned away. Okay? And if you read that in context. It says they've turned away. And their salvation is incomplete. If you read that in context, what, it mean, what it's saying there is there'll be some, even some sitting in this room, that the Holy Spirit, you've, exp you've experienced the Holy Spirit and you've felt that calling of Him, but you have chosen to go another path. It has nothing to do with those who are already saved. It's those who have, are sitting inside of something like this or have experienced God and have walked away. Okay? It has nothing to do with salvation. But anyways... And also, and here I'm going to say this on the last note, and this one may get me some emails, and it's okay. Because there's two camps when it comes to suicide, okay? There's the camp over here that says, well, if you were really saved, you would have never, you, they would never commit suicide. And it's kind of like that whole depression thing. If, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, but I struggle because we just read a verse that says neither life nor death can separate us from God. So I'm a little fearful talking about this because I don't want to give, because if you wrote that question because you feel, like you feel like this is your next step in life is to take your own life, 
Um, I don't want to be like, yeah, you're going to go to heaven and encourage you to do that. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. Okay? Um, but just to answer that question plainly, according to what the Scripture says, is nothing can tear us away from the love of God, life nor death, disease. So in my opinion, the an- and this is my opinion, okay? Um, this isn't me going, the Bible says this, but in my opinion, based on what the Bible does say, um, like if you commit, if someone has committed suicide and they have really been saved, then nothing's going to separate us from them. We'll be in heaven. But let me let me say this up front, okay? If you wrote that question because you're pondering that, please get help. Please get help, because what what's happening is is you're losing, you're getting joy and happiness mixed up. Because there's two there's two different things there. Because you, there's some things that have happened in your life that are really bad. Okay, and those happenings is what determines if you're happy or not. Okay, but joy is set in something eternal. That's why Hebrews says that the cross is is the anchor for the soul. Okay, the cross love and like it means it's no matter what seas are the seas are doing around us, no matter how much we're being tossed back and forth, we have this anchor, this joy found in the cross. That keeps us steady. That keeps us afloat. And so, please get get some help. Come talk to me. Come talk. Find, help me. Let me help you. Let me help you find some counseling. The church will pay for it. If that's you. Okay. Everybody, everybody, clear on that. Okay. Here's the last question. And why somebody turned in this question? I didn't even put it on the on the thing, but it's a pretty nifty question. Derek, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? And it's a it's a fight between because I said no questions off limits, but um, it's a mix between mint chocolate chip and moose tracks. All right, it's a good one right there. Okay, mix them together, you get a pretty good appetite. Okay, is everybody, everybody good? Okay, so um, let's do this. I'm gonna pray, and then you can turn it off, and then we'll I'm gonna do something else. Okay, so the guy, I want to thank you so much that even in our questioning of of you. Um, even in our wondering that you are a God that's big enough to do it, that you're big enough to handle the questions. And God, I just pray that I did it justice today of answering some of these questions. Um, God, I just pray for um, our hearts here today that even in our questions, we know that um, we can still trust you because Lord knows I still have some questions about things. And so I just pray that you just um, take our frequently asked questions and we and it turn it into motivation to seek you more. And I pray all this in your name. Amen.